on September 13, 1980, on the last day of the Ninth International Thomistic Congress organized in Rome uh, during the 100th anniversary of the encyclical Eterni Patris, which really instigated the renewal of Thomistic research, John Paul II called uh, Thomas Aquinas Doctor Humanitatis from Latin doctor that is a teacher or doctor of humanity from Latin humanitas, which secondarily means kindness, culture, and refinement, but in the first meaning means humanness, humanity, with that which makes us human. In fact, human nature. It also means in English the totality of all human beings, but in that expression, John Paul II suggested that uh, Aquinas is the teacher of humanity in the sense of humanness, that which makes us human. Now, why is Thomas called the teacher of human nature? Does his anthropology offer anthropological insights that are more better than others, such as these of St. Augustine or Basil the Great, or to use a more contemporary to him example, Bonaventure? Um, what is it that makes it so valuable? Before I say what is John Paul II's clue, why is it that we need to pay special attention to Thomistic anthropology? Um, let me just explain that the title, the very title, Doctor of Something, is an official title that is uh, in the Catholic Church that is conferred by, uh, by the Church, uh, ultimately by the Pope. And there are, there are only 36 figures in history who ever received, uh, so, sorry, 34 figures in history who ever received such a title. Thomas was the fifth in history um, and the fifth Latin father, soon followed by four Greek fathers. And he is traditionally called, as you know, you can read it on the sculptures as you enter Angelicum, uh, Dr. Angelicus, Angelicus, or Dr. Communis. So the angelic doctor or the common doctor, in the sense, the one from, from whom everybody can learn. There is a additional designation of Thomas in the context of the discussion of the doctors of the church. He is actually called the doctors of the doctors. And so there is a special centrality to his authority, intellectual authority. And my question for you and my invitation for you uh, today is to consider why is it that we have to pay such special uh, we, we offer a special place for Thomas in anthropology. And uh, John Paul II's suggestion was that it is because of the clarity, completion, precision, and ontological foundations of Thomas's anthropology. And this is, I think, particularly important um, that he names ontological foundations of Thomas's anthropology. Much has been said uh, already about the metaphysical and uh, anthropological assumptions of Thomas's theory. Now, I believe that those ontological foundations can solve us a number of contemporary problems uh, in uh, ongoing anthropological debates. So I'm trying to focus on these, but uh, I invite you to ponder, was John Paul II over-enthusiastic in his designation or was he perhaps right? So let's dive into Thomistic anthropology. And uh, my second introductory small remark is that actually there is a distinction between Thomas's and Thomistic anthropology. What I've done is mostly Thomistic, not Thomas's. But as a historian, I, of course, investigate Thomas's. And I'm trying in this talk to focus really on Thomas's. When it comes to Thomistic, you will have various traditions. And Thomistic would be that which, uh, well, it can be actually said, Thomistic can be said as Thomas's, 
but domestic is also uh, that which is developed by Thomas's followers, but not authentically or originally his. And so you will have various blends of Thomism, such as there's existential, essentialistic Thomas, Krakow school Thomism, which is a logical school of Thomism. Uh, its best proponent is actually a, a lecturer of logic, a professor of logic here at Angelicum, Josef Maria Bohensky, a almost ingenious mind in logic, who went on to be uh, a uh, rector at Freiburg in Switzerland. But then there are also Lublin school Thomisms, uh, like which are typically classified as phenomenological Thomists. And if I am to belong to any school, that would be phenomenological Thomism, as it is developed by Edith Stein. And another very important proponent of phenomenological Thomism would be uh, John Paul II. All right, uh, so that's about the title. When we really focus on Thomas, it is good to start by saying that he was involved in a number of debates that might seem of little importance or relevance to us today, such as the plurality or singularity of a substantial form in a man, but they actually have significant impact also to the debates we are uh, having uh, to, to today. And uh, so we need to really address these debates as we go in order to understand Thomas's uh, point of view on human nature. And Thomas functioned during a golden period of scholasticism, that's 13th century, where it really was part of his regular duties as a scholar to address the ongoing debates. And um, he does so actually, it is very well reflected in his writing. I know some of you only start to uh, study philosophy, but the building block of a medieval summa, the way it is organized, an article, lists arguments in favor for uh, a certain standpoint. It lists authorities based on which we develop our own uh, line of reasoning. And then it addresses every argument for the conception that we refuse. So it's a very uh, argumentative and very discursive way of uh, thinking. And Thomas was no exception. And uh, this is why we really need to know, if we want to know what Thomas thought, we need to know who was he addressing and who was he talking to. Um, all right, so what are Thomas's uh, sources and what, is, what are his uh, um, uh, references? So first of all, um, really a very big reference point for Thomas is uh, Platonic dualism and Platonic repartition of the soul. So the fundamental anthropological distinction that runs between the body and the soul uh, is the cornerstone for uh, Plato's dichotomic understanding of a human being. And uh, please observe that there are two fundamental principles in uh, Plato's uh, dualism, its body and the soul, but it is only the soul that really is the identity of the human being. And uh, there is a accidental or cont contingent relation between the soul uh, and the body, and Plato's metaphor is that of a cloak that we put on and off as we come and go of this material world. So bodies is something that we really uh, use, but it's contingent to our reality as human beings. And uh, it is something that we can actually, uh, in our essence, do very well without. So um, that's why the Platonic standpoint is also often characterized as spiritualism. And uh, yes, just... Remember that the corner, uh, the, the essential feature of this standpoint is the accident, accidental connection between the soul and the body. So there is also 
uh, in Neoplatonism, there are various anti-somatic um, assumptions, such as the fact that the body is in fact a uh, obstacle to the development, proper development of the soul, such as the contemplation of ideas. And Neoplatonism was very potent, and you will find many church fathers following in the footsteps of Neoplatonic anti-somatic um, lines of reasoning. And many uh, ancient fathers, in fact, Basil of Caesarea or Ambrose of Milan, interpreted the ancient uh, inscription Gnoti Selton, that is written on the forefront of the uh, Delphi, um, the Apollo temple in Delphi. They took it to mean that Gnoti Selton, know thyself. They took it to mean know thy soul. So if we ask what we are, the Platonists and Neoplatonists and some early church fathers will tell you, you have to know about your soul. That's what you are. And uh, various anti-Somatisms followed, and they have existed also throughout the Middle Ages in, in, in various Gnostics and, uh, and also later on. So the ancient school that also exemplified very well anti-Somatism with which Thomas debates is also the one uh, of, of the Stoics and their account of passions. So for Stoics, happiness is defined as apatia, like a state of lack of passions, and they advise that one strives for such a state. And they also, in fact, assumed that it is possible to achieve such a state, that we can exist in a perfect, harmonious uh, contemplation that is not disturbed by any passions. Now, Jerome actually called this standpoint uh, Pelagianism because he says it's a kind of salvation that is achieved by human means. And the assumption that we can do it by our means is actually form of Pelagianism, which is why he's very critical of it. And we will see how Thomas adapts this view. So Thomas, directly contradicting Basil and Ambrose, so really Christian authorities, directly really contradicting them, he will write, anima mea non est ego, I am not my soul, or my soul is not me. In other words, I am something else than just my soul. And to really show you how easily he, he is to dismiss ancient masters, not in everything, but on that point, there is a direct, uh, there are direct quotations from many church fathers who would exactly say that I am my soul and my body is only what I have. Just like Plato would say, I have it and I can dispose of it. And also then the rest things which are around us, said both Basil and Ambrose. Uh, but really, the soul is what is me. And then they specify that the soul is the mind and uh, uh, the mind. Yes. All right. So that's the first reference point that is uh, rather important to, to understand as we go in, in uh, describing uh, Thomas's approach. Now, the second really important distinction is that of the tripart platonic tripartition of the soul. So, uh, as you might remember, Plato and his Republic accounted for, provided three arguments in order to show that the soul is trisected, so to speak. It has three different functions. And the way he argued for it was out of conflict. He showed situations in which particular functions of the soul enter into a conflict. And when they enter into a conflict, by that we see that they are different because they coerce one another. So we remember Odysseus who chained himself to the, or get himself tied with a rope to a ship so that when he was tempted to listen to the sirens, 
And he knew by something in him that was logical, he knew that that would actually cause his distress and eventually death. He, despite that felt very strong urge to jump the ship and, and uh, follow the sirens. So this shows one conflict in the soul. Another conflict that Plato points out to, so that would be the timos and logistic of entering into a kind of a coercion with one another. Another one is that um, the example of a sailor who sees water around him, uh, all around him, he's shipwrecked, and he has a very strong urge again to drink that water. But he, uh, at the same time, reasons that uh, this would actually kill him because it's salty water. So there is something like a bodily desire, which is different from the one we just discussed, Timos, as Plato shows in the final argument. It is different from that which is logical in us. And the final argument is that of Leontius, who walks uh, from the city of Piraeus to the nearby hill, and he passes by the executioner's house. And there, he knows, are, is a place where the executioner uh, collects dead bodies and keeps the dead bodies. And on one hand, he's very interested. There is an urge in him to see the bodies because he never saw them. But on the other hand, when he glances, he is disgusted. And there is something that repulses him from looking farther. But the interest prevails, and so he does look at the bodies. And that shows that those urges can be differentiated. Some are bodily, and some are... Uh, we could call them appetitive, epithemia, and some are desires, which I would call ambitions or, or our wishes, that's timos. And so the platonic proposition is to really work out with the conflict. Now, however, if the powers of the soul are not all in a conflict, but function more harmoniously and synchronously, then this way, this tactique, intellectual tactique of distinguishing the powers would fail to identify all various powers of our soul. So uh, Thomas will rather follow uh, uh, Aristotle in distinguishing the powers of the souls based on their objects. And that will result in a much more refined anthropological model. So a little bit about Aristotelian hylomorphism. I believe I don't need to say much about it now because much has been said. So the basic distinction between accident and um, uh, between the act and potency and between form and matter has already been a number of times stated. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm going to skip here. And the, the other element that... Um, but there are very interesting debates to actually be held in the discussion of the, the way Thomas addresses the distinction between act and potency. And as you all know, the act, uh, soul is the first act of the, uh, of the body. Soul is what informs the body in uh, his vision. And I believe the very important distinction is that between the first act and the secondary acts to really show that which limits down the set of possibilities and makes us belong to humankind from that spectrum of possible alterations as we undergo when we develop within that human species. All right. Um, another standpoint that existed since antiquity, uh, represented by Leucipius, uh, Democritus, or Lucretius, is materialism. And that would really be the standpoint in which uh, one claims there is nothing but the body and we are the bodies. And 
the source for Thomas, but I hope you already see that it's an ambiguous source from which Thomas is free to take, but also to criticize, is both patristic and biblical anthropology. And to draw your attention to a number of anthropological models that can be derived from the Bible or the patristics, you already know the, let's say, neoplatonic Christian version um, that was represented by, by um, some church fathers. But for example, Paul's um, St. Paul's anthropology is uh, a reference point that Thomas hesitates to adopt. So I already described dichotomic models of human nature, such as Platonism and Aristotelianism, which use two fundamental elements to the human being, body and soul. Now, Paul is famously the one to say that there are not two, but three. There is body, there is soul, and there is spirit. And there were very few Christian anthropologists that took up this distinction and really worked it out. One is Irenaeus of Lyon. He proposed an anthropological model that really works with a threefold distinction of a human being. And Einstein in the 20th century did the same. But Thomas is the one to debate the possibility in his commentary to the letter, the letter to the Hebrews and the commentary to the first letter to Thessalonians. But he dismisses it and proposes the interpretation that again fits in the dichotomic hylomorphic uh, proposition he accepts. So that's about it. And if we, when it comes to the sources, and uh, if we want to show the pointers of where he takes most from and where he criticizes, um, so he he would dismiss. Dualism in a Platonic form, Neoplatonic anti-Somatism, also the Stoic account of passions, but would take most from Aristotelian hylomorphism, then dismiss spiritualistic and materialistic accounts of the soul, and take quite some inspirations for his anthropology from church fathers and the Bible. So that's how he goes about uh, construing his anthropology. And... Um, if we can now dive in very shortly into the Thomistic model of the soul. Um, oh, yes, I haven't added actually one intriguing element for, for me as a historian, the way Thomas does uh, develop his anthropology, is that he also derives a number of anthropological categories strictly from the Bible, and then offers a philosophical analysis of them and a kind of definition. Such uh, categories like the heart, conscience, or actually will, even though it is in the Bible present mostly in the context of God, it's God's will, he often will, uh, he does adopt the idea of will. You will not find the category of will in Plato or in Aristotle. It is really something that comes later. And uh, Thomistic anthropology is the one to solidify the concept of will. Also, please notice what is missing. So Thomas would never use anthropological categories which we are used to today, such as an ego, or, uh, well, the ego, let's focus on the ego first. So that's the category that really appears for the first time arguably in, in August time, but as a consistent and systematic anthropological category is developed by a much later 14th century uh, Dominican uh, Heinrich of Suzo for the first time. And then it's very potent in German uh, philosophical tradition, uh, Kant, uh, Fichte, Schelling, and then made huge career in, in phenomenology and in various psychologies. Now, you will not find any um, 
way in which Thomas would make use of such a faculty of the soul as an ego. There's not, not such a thing in him. All right, so that's enough of historical uh, references. So, um, in opposing the dualist models of human nature and following Aristotle, Thomas understood human being to be a unity, and that is a composite and formal matter, an embodied soul. Soul, as you know, is the form of the body and the first act one to determine the belonging to the kind and the principle determining the trajectory of the being's development, its possible variations and alterations as it matures towards its final end. And this final end is, is something I'm going to get back to. So the human being is a compositum, but not a mixtum. So mixtum would be a mixture of various things that do not blend into a new whole. But the composite form and matter is not that kind of a unity. The unity of a mixture is, is very uh, limited. Soul as a first act that organizes the natural body, informs the living being, consti constituting the principle of its life and function. And if you, uh, uh, well, let's draw an analogy. Inasmuch as the design of a sculpture, like Nika, the winged victory of Samotras, is material and built of marble, and inseparable from this, from this material it is built of, so, this, so is the human soul inseparable from the human body. And the form, so the soul, is primarily what makes this thing be what it is, but not, and that's a sharp distinction between contemporary anthropologies, not in its individuality or particularity, numerically unique identity, but in its generic categorization, that which makes us of a specific kind. And essential questions in philosophy are what targets the essence of a human, of, of any being. And when we ask questions, what am I? Or what is an X? We ask essential questions that uh, target the essence of the being. And as I already said, uh, so that is actually fundamentally different from the question, who am I? The question, who am I, typically addresses the individuality of a being and asks for the uh, unique identity. So uh, that which addresses the, the general is the question of what is an X. And um, you already have heard the answer to the question of what is the mystic answer, basic answer to what is the human being. So it is a composite, but of a rational soul in a specific chunk of matter. Now, Thomas also has other ways of describing the essence of a human, a human being, and you have already also heard it. It's, it's exactly in the title of the John Paul II designated about him. It's humanitas, that which makes us human. Uh, that's a far more restricted definition because it demands further explication. But it is a profound claim, and one with serious advantages for Christian paradigm of thought, to assume uh, that we are a composite and not merely souls. So, uh, for example, it can very well uh, account for the resurrection of the bodies. And uh, Thomas's anthropology, I think, uh, is very uh, potent in describing human axiology in particular. That is something that um, I'm going to say a little bit in a, in a moment. So the traditional Thomistic account for uh, how the soul acts is that it acts indirectly through the powers it has, and those powers are, as you know, organized in the, uh, 
according to three three levels, which all exist in a human being. They are vegetative, they are uh, uh, animal, and then they are rational. And the powers are typically organized as to the perfection uh, according to the generality of their object. And you will find in Thomas five list, five types of powers, vegetative, locomotive, sense powers, appetitive, and uh, intellectual. And in order to understand the categories I'm going to use henceforth, it's good to crisscross the sense and the rational, one which always tar targets particular object, and the, the one that targets a general object, so that's rational. When we deal with senses, we always deal with particular objects, and the rational is that which addresses the uh, general level. With cognitive, and so that which gives knowledge, and appetitive, so that which is a kind of directedness towards something. And this is how Thomas comes up with the designations such as that which is, um, for example, a rational appetite, that's will. Or a uh, particularly interesting uh, name for passions is that it is a sense appetite. Uh, that's because he differentiates both based on the character of a, a part uh, of, a, of a power and its object. And uh, the vegetative part of the soul, level of the soul, has as its object only one's own body. The uh, Sen sensory animal souls can address anybody, but it's only the intellectual soul that can address any being uh, in general. So uh, the, the vegetative powers are self-nutrition, growth and reproduction. Sensory powers are the external senses and the internal senses. That's a particularly interesting medieval proposition for anthropology. Uh, there was a certain hypothesis that we cannot account for our understanding and the animal understanding of cognition if we do not uh, postulate a kind of like an internal sense that uh, makes the sensory data received from the senses uh, coherent. So for example, if an animal like a sheep sees uh, a wolf, it not only uh, can sense with smell that is there or through its eyesight that it has a shape, but it also uh, refers this data one to another as belonging to one object. And the power that allows us to do that, they have hypothesized there has to be some kind of a power, and they call it sensus interior or sensus communis. Now, uh, I hesitate to translate this common sense, which is sometimes done in, in uh, historical publications, because common sense, the way we understand it in, in English, would rather be related to the virtue of prudence in Thomas, not to that hypothesis of an internal uh, capacity to coordinate the sensory data from various senses. And the other internal senses are imagination, memory, and what is called the estimative power, vis estimativa. And I would like to highlight here that these belong to the animal part of the soul. That is not a banal claim that uh, uh, such powers belong and explain also the animal kind of existence. Now, the rational soul, of course, has two powers, intellect and will. So the will is the rational appetite, as I said, and the intellect is, is the rational cognition that can abstract the form from the individuals. Uh, and it is fundamentally directed towards the truth, while will is the, targets the objects such as the good. It desires the good. So because we are one, these powers do enter into with one, they do 
coerced, but also are coordinated with one another. And the presumption of the unity of a human being is what allows us to account for various ways in which we live lives as human beings and not as animals, because certain lower powers can be perfected by the higher powers and influence. Now, Thomistic Thomas's way to explain that all those powers belong to one substantial form and therefore uh, interact with one another is to call a human being a uh, microcosm. And Thomas has a number of expression for this uh, anthropological category. He says that the human being is on the horizon, homo in horizonte, or that is in confinio, it's pretty much the same. He says that homo is minor mundus. Human being is a small world, or homo is brevis mundus. Human being is a short world, so world in short. And as well, he uses the concept of microcosmos. Now, this is a very interesting uh, observation in the sense that anthropology actually directs us with investigation in various ways. So if we belong to the kingdom of that which is vegetative, but also the kingdom of plants, we are in a way a plant, we are also an animal, but we are also a material being, and we are a person, we belong to each of these kingdoms, Human creature is the only one that can be investigated using specific tools that are characteristic to those types of objects. And you won't much find much investigation of the way we are material in Thomas's um, treatise on the human being, but you will find a lot about how we are or what is for us to be a plant and what is for us to be an animal, and also a lot about what it is for us to be a human person. The way uh, one way to actually apply Thomistic anthropology is uh, has been done, for example, by Edith Stein to analyze the materiality of the human person. We are also objects who can be moved around and uh, we undergo the same processes as material objects. And this is a place of a very interesting contemporary debate about actually what differentiates us from other material objects and specifically, not the one on the crisscross between the uh, animal world and the human world, which has been dealt with, but specifically in ontology, what is the difference between an electronic uh, matter, the one that is capable of uh, performing algorithmical uh, abstract operations, and uh, the human way we reason. And there is not much, as I said, to uh, account for it in Thomas. But contemporary, a big uh, debate about the uh, personalistic distinction. Distinction applies not only to the crisscross between the animal and the human, but also between the matter and the human. So why is it that we call uh, a rational, uh, rational uh, only the human person and not certain material objects that can perform algorithms at many often, many occasions, much more proficiently than humans, much faster. Uh, we cannot even compute in such a such a speed as they do. So, how do we account for the personalistic distinction in that in that realm? All right, um, and that's why the term microcosm. We are all of that, and this is perhaps why uh, I applied Thomistic anthropology in didactics. So, because it is an integral, I would categorize it as a very integral anthropology. It 
it does not dissect us into something and focus only on one aspect of a human being, but it really addresses the whole. Uh, it allows us to develop the whole of the human being, an integral human being, and not uh, overemphasize one aspect or another. So imagine, if you will, a didactical proposition that would focus solely on the intellect or on human reason. Very easily, you can develop uh, human beings which are immature as to their emotionality, which are immature as to their volition. Now, a Thomistic anthropology, which analyzes human being in all aspects, also allows us to show how we can perfect and develop all of those uh, various uh, various uh, spheres. And uh, uh, this is what can be, how you, how you can actually apply Thomistic anthropology in, in didactics. So uh, I was about to focus a little bit more on the Thomistic uh, theory of passion, but I see I have very little time for that, so I'm going to skip it. This is very well described in, in, uh, in literature, and uh, Thomas adopted his theory of passions uh, from uh, previous thinkers. Uh, they were passed on. This theory of passion was passed on to him from uh, through Albert the Great, and the very interesting, uh, I would say element of the theory of passions is the only one that I'm going to highlight here, is that passions, so we, what we would contemporarily call emotions, is uh, something that uh, is, does not, it's not merely reactive. Thomas, Thomas does account for, for passions as reactions uh, that are instigated or actualized by senses, but then we undergo them rather than we do them. So they are something that is a passio anima. Uh, but he says there are very fine ways in which we can influence the passions. And that's why when we make it a human experience. Uh, for example, we can play with the imagination that alters our memory, um, that alters our emotions. We can play with memory that um, instigate by our will a certain memory which will make us feel certain emotions. But also with will and reason, we can um, instigate a certain thought and uh, certain emotions will follow. So he does have a account of, of uh, uh, how we, the passions interact with other powers. And then finally, something I feel a little bit more comfortable about, that is human axiology. So that's the anthropological model of Thomas. And uh, what is particularly interesting to me <laughs> is how Thomas accounts for what is our worth. Now, this is not a question Thomas asks. So axiology contemporarily is the study of what is the worth of things. And typically, uh, we assume that there is a specific name for the human worth and it's called dignity. And since Kant would differentiate the value of a being uh, from the dignity and value would be that which has a certain price that can be paid for an, a certain amount that is equal to its worth. Not things, things that things that have value can be uh, equal in measure to something else. Now, dignity is predicated there when the value of a certain thing does not have any possible equivalent. And the first idea that a human being does not have any possible equivalent is spelled out by early church fathers. And Thomas is one to follow in their footsteps. Now, this is really what distinguishes us from the rest of creation is the, the, the value that we have. 
And Thomas's account, uh, so as I said, it's not like Thomas really has a specific uh, investigation pertaining to human axiology, but you can derive it from a number of his writings. So the first one is his, what is called an optimistic ontology. That is the idea that everything that is, is good, and that everything uh, that is by virtue of being uh, is convertible with good, basing the theory of transcendentals. Second very important reference point for the investigation Thomas's axiology is his theory of the person. And then the third is his theory of an image of God. And as for optimistic ontology, it applies to all beings. So what is particularly interesting is his theory of a person and his theory of an image. Now, the, uh, his consideration of human personhood would be, I would say, more philosophical, while the uh, investigation of human image iconicity are more theological in the sense that they are based on a very theological concept derived from the Bible. Now, finally, there is a very troubling remark in Thomas that pertains to the, there's a discussion of the death penalty, and uh, I'm going to say a little bit about it. So what is Thomas's view on, on human value? How does he account? What are the basic uh, statements he has? What does he have to say about human value? So persona dignitatem importat is the, 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 I would say, the axiom of his theory of a person. So Thomas really defined the fact that the, the person through having a dignity. And among, he considers various definitions of a human, a human uh, person, or actually a person in general. He considers the definition that he derives from Richard the Great. He considers the Boethian definition. He considers what is called the magisterial definition. But one of the definitions he does accept is the first one that is listed here, that states that persona est hypostasis proprietate distincta ad dignitatem pertinenta. So that it is a hypostasis that is distinguished by a property pertaining to dignity. And in that sense, he affirms very strongly that by very definition, by an essential feature, human uh, persons have dignity uh, definitions. But only the first one really finds that human dignity is essential to uh, human personhood. But Thomas has other standpoints in axiology. Um, so, for example, he says, homo dignissima creatura, creatuarum, so human being is the most dignified among the creatures. At tamen, humus homo is dignior altero, but yet one being is more dignified than the other. And this is a very troubling uh, contemporary, very troubling standpoint regarding dignity, because we contemporarily associate the concept of dignity with the concept of equality. And when a theoretician of dignity writes that one man is more dignified than the other, we instantly kind of associate it with the Orwellian, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than the others. So it is, uh, there, there is a way to defend Thomas from, from such an accusation, which is in fact quite simplistic. So the second line of reasoning is to, to account for human dignity is to consider the uh, the Genesis teaching on imago et similitudo dei, so the imaging and similitude of human beings. And Thomas is the one to adopt from the church fathers a very prominent view that image is that which is ingrained in our nature and similitude is that which is a dynamic aspect of us, of our worth, which can be changed and altered. 
image would be something that is ingrained in nature, and we have said already how Thomas sees that nature. We already said that it's a personal nature, but simil similitude is something or likeness. It's something that we achieve through actions or we end with the cooperation with divine grace. And based on such a understanding of human uh, iconicity, Thomas Farther goes on to distinguish what I call a gradational account of, of dignity, three kinds of icons. There, are, there is an image of nature which pertains to all people. By nature, we are all dignified. Then there is an image of grace, uh, which pertains to those who actually or habitually already are just. And then there is the image of glory, which pertains only to the holy people. So that's the fixed account of an icon who perfectly uh, depicts God. And the criterion for the human being image, an image of God, is, according to Thomas Aquinas, that it can love and know God. And that is exactly the end of a human being in Thomas's anthropology. I mentioned that we will come to this end, which is the final end of the human being. It is to know and to love God, that our two human uh, faculties, reason and will, are directed towards the highest being. And as I said, all people are potentially capable of knowing and loving God. Um, some people, just people, actually and habitually love God, but only saints perfectly and irreversibly love and know God. And this is why his account of human dignity is also gradational. This is why he says one man is more dignified than the other. Now, the final aspect Thomas's teaching uh, on human dignity is his discussion of death penalty. And this is one of the most troubling elements of his uh, writings when it comes to human dignity. It's the only uh, passage in which the expression human dignity actually occurs. So what does Thomas says? I say, by sinning, one departs from the order of reason and consequently falls away from human dignity. Insofar as he is naturally free and exists for himself, and he uh, and for himself, and he falls in some way into the slavish states of beasts by disposing of according as he is useful to others. This is expressed in the psalm. Uh, when man was in honor, did not understand he has uh, been compared to the senseless beasts and made like them. And in Proverbs, the fool shall serve the wise. Hence, also, it would be evil in itself to kill a man so long as he preserves his dignity. Yet it may be good to kill a man who has sinned, even as it is to kill a beast. For a bad man is worse than a beast uh, and is more harmful, as the philosopher states. So this is an axiological observation. Thomas is talking about the worth of a human as, as it is uh, lowered below the rank of a beast. And this is not uncommon among church fathers to state that uh, personal nature, being a person, because of the autonomy and freedom we have, is in fact a risky nature. It is a nature that can, when it is uh, acting, lower its axiological status below that of the beasts. And in fact, Augustine is another father who says that a bad, bad angel, the one who uh, uh, acts wrongly, even though he is more perfect by nature, intelligence is higher, is in fact worse than a good person, human person, 
because the human person, even though they are limited in their nature by virtue of being both uh, mortal and of lesser reason, they are just. And he says, for uh, for the human, for, for the hierarchy of beings, when we account for the axiology of those beings which are free and autonomous, such as angels or, or, or human beings, the criterion is not just the perfection of nature. The criterion is also whether they fulfill the uh, rules of justice, exactly as the way, weight of justice. And this line of reasoning to state that what is really uh, except, exceptionally dynamic in us is our axiology, and that it can be altered so badly and so radically, uh, is something that I've encountered in most uh, theoreticians, Christian theoreticians of the ancient and medieval era that I've been reading on. It's a very interesting debate how to uh, agree such a view of human dignity with the contemporary teach magisterial teachings of the church, which do claim that humans have inalienable dignity. We claim that there is nothing that a human being can do uh, or can be done to the human person that would actually erase, alienate their dignity. So how can we account for this, what I call Imago Picardis, the image of, of a beast? which a human being apparently realizes. So, well, we go back firstly to the distinction that we had here. Thomas is arguably talks in that passage about the image of grace and the image of glory and not the image of nature because our nature remains personal and remains with the same faculties I described. Also, if we talk about the one who is damned and that will ultimately fix in his being evil. And even uh, demons, whose final eschatological fate is known to us, would have a certain kind of dignity of nature by very virtue of them being personal. And I doubt that there is a way to actually uh, state that this little passage could be read as to suggest uh, that, it, that it literally means that uh, the person, that human person loses human dignity and has only the dignity of animals. What it does lose is the, uh, is the uh, image of nature, uh, image of grace and image of glory. Now, what the second distinction that I'd like to propose is the one, uh, that's the final one, is also the one um, what I'd like to take you, what I'd like you to take out from this observation is uh, perhaps a distinction between the first personal and the third personal relation to dignity. So the first personal relation to dignity is the dignity of a digni dignity bearer to his or her own dignity. And the second, the third personal relation to dignity would be the relation of any given person to another dignity, to the subject of dignity. And when we talk in contemporary magisterial documents about the fact that uh, certain acts are uh, ill-advised, immoral, because they take away human dignity, this does not directly stand as some claim in contradiction to the statement that human dignity is inalienable, because what we state in social teachings, when the magisterial documents account for the fact that human dignity is on one hand inalienable, but on the other can be taken away by certain moral behavior, what we do mean is that the third parties act towards the dignity bearer as if he did not have dignity. 
But logically speaking, the very fact that such a person is a dignity bearer makes it possible for others to behave immorally towards him as those who behave as if he did not have the dignity um, that is disrespected through their actions. But the, the remarks of the church fathers that really accentuate the dynamic kind of dignity we have, they all pertain to the paradigm that is first personal. In that sense, there is no third party that would ever take away the human God-given dignity of nature. And the only one who is the one most likely, but also the one that is capable of altering human dignity by increasing it into further level of decrease or decreasing it uh, when it comes to the image of uh, grace or glory is the, the bearer of dignity himself. Not even God, I would argue, is capable to alter the autonomous, the axiological status of an autonomous being. So there are ways to reconcile the patristic teaching and the Thomistic teaching on human dignity with the contemporary propositions talking of the inalienable dignity of a human being. And this is perhaps one reason why um, uh, John Paul II was not just being polite with his Dr. Humanitatis remark. 